The Olympic Channel podcast is brought to you by Bridgestone, worldwide Olympic and Paralympic partner, a founding partner of the Olympic Channel. Olympic Channel podcast. I'm Ed Knowles and this is the official Olympic Channel podcast. Daley Thompson, six feet, one inch tall, outgoing, dedicated. His ultimate experience, the joy of the competition. There is only one Daley Thompson, one of the greatest British athletes of all time, who won not one, but two gold medals in decathlon. And the Bridgestone ambassador for the Olympic Chase Your Dreams No Matter What campaign is joining the Olympic Channel podcast as a co-host. And he's on the line now. Hello, Daly. How are you? Ed, I am doing incredibly well. How are you doing? Very well. We're celebrating 40 years since Daly won his first Olympic title in Moscow 1980. And across four episodes, we're revisiting four decades, speaking to some of the greatest Olympians from each decade to see how they chase their dreams no matter what. Last week, we spoke in depth to Daly about the 80s, and this week we have someone very special to represent the 90s. Olympic champion heptathlete, and dare I say, friend of Daly too, Denise Lewis. How are you? <laughs> I'm really good. And for you to say a friend, you said it, Daly actually didn't, but it feels like an honour to be even rubbing shoulders with the big man over these years. It's been good. One of your first ever Olympic memories is actually Daly in his tight shorts with his tash from 1980. <laughs> I, who could forget that image? I mean, yes, that was my inspiration, hands down. Um, not the tight shorts, but the <laughs> fact that he was such, he was such a legend. The decathlon a grueling test of strength, speed, and stamina that would earn one of them a coveted title, the finest all-around athlete in the world. He didn't look like anyone else on that team, on that British team, and he just had this aura that came through the television. And even as a, what would I have been? I would have been an eight, eight-year-old at that time. It just felt like, wow. It's an occasion, not only to witness daily, but the Olympics. It was that light bulb moment for me. And I thought, wow, athletics, I did at school. I ran on the yard and the playground. But then when I saw it in, in all its glory, I was hooked. You grew up, obviously, with your mum, who raised you to have great belief in yourself. How was that? My mum was an interesting one because I, I think what she really taught me was work ethic and you know, obviously, I'm only child of a single parent, and and so it all that's all I knew was working hard. And so when she realised that I was literally hooked by athletics, she didn't hold me back, which I think was really special because you know I was her precious one. And so she sort of just said, "Okay, I believe in you, and if you want to do this, then then go for it." But she didn't have a clue back then. I don't think parents really had a clue what to do with uh, talented uh, youngsters. Because I was into athletics, but I was also listening to a lot of music. So I loved Whitney Houston, you know. I loved Whitney. I thought she was awesome. Obviously, Diana Ross was a big influence in our household. Not only my mom listened to her music, but my, my I have a crazy aunt as well who thought she was Diana Ross. So we used to... <laughs> <laughs> those images of me with my godmother's wigs on, she used to wear wigs. 
as a lot of uh, black black um, households used to have. So those images of me donning these wigs, literally floating away and singing Ain't No Mountain High Enough. So, <laughs> you know, it's all that inspiration for me. Um, and then when I did tune into athletics at that time, um, again, very fortunate to grow up in Wolverhampton, that we had Tessa Sanderson, who did go on to win gold in 1984 and in the javelin, women's javelin. And so... I could actually see someone who looked like me who was winning as well. Um, Sonia Lanneman was a great inspiration because she was on my track and she was an Olympian and very approachable um, and just a lovely person. Um, I, I think when you have that contact, I, I just think it, it, it makes you believe that, that you've got a chance at least. And the rest is, as Daly will tell you, is down to hard work and commitment and the right coaches and the right time and we can get there. So that was a huge inspiration. In lane four, representing Great Britain, the 1994 Commonwealth Games champion, Denise Lewis. So let's fast forward to 1996. I know Daly was very nonchalant about becoming an Olympian in 1976, 20 years earlier. I didn't think it was ever going to be a problem. It was, it was achieving something more, being in the first five or being in the first three. You know me, Denise, I never think small. Did you have the same feeling or were you, how were you feeling around that moment that you became an Olympian? Back then you used to get letters to the post, so I was doing cartwheels, literally, you couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it because, you know, it doesn't still feel real, even though you've got the qualification mark and the standard. It doesn't feel real until you get that letter and um, you get the kit and you see the Olympic rings on it and you're like, <gasps> I'm one of those people. I wouldn't even say legends, but I'm one of those people, you know, like the dailies of this world that, you know, you can get to at least get a chance. You know, once you've got the kit, once you're in the right groove, that you've got a chance to maybe get on the podium. So 96 for me was just that self-realization that I was good enough. I was really good enough to, to be included in that elite team. But once you'd been there, did your view of it change in that, oh, it's not as, they're not as far ahead of me as I thought? It was almost as my brain hadn't caught up to my body and its, its capabilities. And so I wasn't in that position of thinking, yeah, I, I'm, I'm here and I'm, I've got to get more. It was, can I hold it together through those two days in the heptathlon to come out with something really special and I think I was ranked second or third in the world because I just broke the British record in 96 so that was Judy Simpson's um, British record and I thought yeah it's it's about me now I need to come come into the arena but I was so overawed with the, the noise in Atlanta and from the start of the heptathlon, I could not think, I couldn't 
it, I was like Bambi. I just took, wasn't in control of my limbs <laughs> throughout the events. <laughs> and things were just happening to me as opposed to me feeling in control. Fast forward second day, I had a hideous long jump. And Daily knows I'm not one for tears and stuff like that. But I actually had a, a moment and I had a good old cry after I walked off the long jump, feeling really disappointed. I remember having a chat with my physio at the time, Kevin Lidlow, and he was like, you know, what's the worst that can happen at this moment? You feel you've done badly. Let's just finish this heptathlon off and, you know, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make it, I'll make you believe that you can, you can go out and do something special. So I had another great javelin and I was in third place. And it was that realization for me, especially with the heptathlon, that even when things are falling apart, if you keep digging deep, you can salvage something. Mm. And I came away with that bronze medal, uh, the only medal from, I think, the British women at those games. And I just, Denise, you are better than you think. You've got to aim for more. And that was the turning point for me. There comes a moment when you either decide that this is where you belong or that it's just it's just a game and fun. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and you do see it. You know, some athletes don't believe they can get there. And so for them, I guess it is about, you know, getting the kit and that's the highlight. But when you are aiming for the top, you have to you have to you have to step up in everything you do and, and that's the expectations you place on yourself it's the preparation and the training um and on and off the track i think you have to become a different person and i think that's what i learned in the the four-year cycle from atlanta to sydney So how did it manifest in you, you becoming more professional? What did what changed? I changed my training base. Um, I moved from oh, yeah. the Midlands. We used to go together. Remember? Yeah, There absolutely. you go. There you go. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you don't underestimate just having you on a training track. Most people's icons, and I'm not trying to make your head swell, really. No, keep going, but, though. Keep going. Don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> but to have daily <laughs> to have daily on your training track again it's all those little gems that you think he's given me words of wisdom and he's clearly believes i've got something that i could i could do it if i apply myself to be a champion you've got to live it and you've got to breathe it and you've got to expect your training to be better your mental application in training to be of a standard that is befitting a champion. And I think until you understand that, you are still self-limiting, not only nutritionally, you know, I got better with, you know, what I was eating, but my sleep patterns, monitoring, you know, how I was feeling, taking my heart rate in the morning, anticipating colds. Um, so all of that, it's all encompassing, you know, it's not just about the physical performance. Um, and so I, I think I earned the right at least to, to give myself a chance to, to go to those Sydney games and, and be excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games. 
I picked up an injury out of, I, I don't know what, I didn't even see it coming. It was nothing I'd experienced before. So my Achilles flared up and I was not for six. I was really not for six. I bawled my eyes out because I just thought, you know, why me? Why now? Everything I've done and everything I believe, why, why, why now? And so that preparation was really tested me. It felt like I should have given up because I, I was thinking this is a sign. You're obviously not meant to be there. Um, but my team around me and again, that resolve that's deep within maybe from my family, from my experience, my childhood, just wouldn't let, wouldn't let me quit. And so I worked hard, <laughs> so hard on that rehabilitation, nine weeks without really touching a track. I was able to do upper body and that was the, the strength that my, my coach gave me, Charles Van Comedy at the time, um, was that you, you do control the controllables, do what you can do. So it was make sure the upper body was strong, make sure the visualization was strong. You know, so I would lie in my bed, lie on the physio bed, just thinking about my hurdles rhythm, thinking about the high jump, all, all the events that I could in real time. And I believe that had those Olympics been moved, Whatever gives you that idea. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> if those Olympics were even, I think, two weeks later, I would not have, I don't think I would have meddled. I really don't because my fitness was just going down and down and down. Um, so I think they kind of met at the last point of my fitness to hold on to get me through those seven events. Uh, man, just... Yeah, it's not the fairy tale in as much as, you know, you want the experience that Daly had where you can come into those championships and be in shape, you can set records and you fly. And some people have to understand and learn that sometimes your Olympic experience is going to be about sheer graft and determination and hanging in there and willing yourself to better, to be better. To see you with that elation when you were on the podium, what were your emotions at, in that moment? Just as you can imagine, a, a massive sense of relief, first and foremost, that I had managed to overcome all the things that I've just been speaking about and to get there in the end, and that it was my time. Yeah, you just can't, you can't replicate it. And you never lose it either, do you? No, no you don't. <laughs> You're right. You know, if you're just even talking about it or even if you watch it on the TV or even someone else's performance, you relive your own. So imagine, you know, watching Jessica Ennis-Hill win her medal in 2012. It was that emotion of, wow, I'm so happy for you. And you remember those feelings of that overwhelming, overwhelming sense of being complete and happy and disbelief. It was just all the emotions like a kaleidoscope. Um, just great, really, just really fantastic. After that incredible high came difficulty. Denise, you became a mother for the first time. 
But a disagreement led to you parting ways with long-standing coach Charles Van Comeny. And after a bit of a scramble, you were recommended the services of Dr. Eckhart Arbeet. But that appointment was controversial and there were some sections of the media who heavily criticised that decision. Just explain what, what the conundrum was for you and why people were, some people were against it. Okay, so... Charles and I split ways. Um, I was left coachless, um, even after having my baby, not knowing who I was going to work with. Um, Frank Dick reached out to me, who had been sort of our head coach, if you like, for want of better terminology at the moment, but um, of the British team when I was a youngster. And he reached out and advised, you know, maybe we need a, a new setup because I just didn't, I didn't really know anyone who else I could train with in the UK I'd made that move and so I'd I knew there was a better way of working and he came up with a suggestion of working with a former East German coach um, and his name is Eckhart and he's Frank said I know him and maybe that's an option for you because at least my strengths were my throws and so he said to me you need someone who knows the throwing setup and with the greatest respect, you know, there just wasn't anyone I could really train with in the UK. And so I, my, my partner at the time was Belgian and I was in Europe anyway. It seemed like a, a decent fit. And I didn't know anything about Eckhart and I didn't know anything about his past. Um, and when I then contacted my performance director at the time and said, well, this is who I'm thinking of training with. Um, I just got phone calls out of everywhere saying, I really don't think this is a good idea. Do you know who this man is? Do you know what he's done? Do you know the, what the allegations are against him? I'm like, no. But then I had almost like a dossier sent to me about his past. And I was like, oh, I can see why everyone has been, is, has a problem with him because he, you know, he's a former East German coach and, um, Obviously, at the time, there was a lot of allegations and people knew about what has happened in, in East Germany um, and the Eastern Bloc at that time. But I felt I didn't have any other options. And when I met with Eckhart, I met his family. That was the first thing. And he seemed like a really nice man. And I trusted Frank and I trusted his decision to, to advise me. And so I went with it. So everyone else was saying, no, I'm saying, what else am I going to do? Time is of the essence. I need a coach. This guy's happy to help me and we'll try and work something out. And I would see him. He'd travel over to, to Belgium um, and work with him there on my throws and my training program. But having Frank sort of at the center doing the overview of the training plan. And that was it until it, the heat just intensified and intensified. Um, I was thinking, well, why would I not train with this person when he seems like a decent human being to me and he's, he's advising me? I know right from wrong. I don't have a problem with it. And the point I made when I was giving articles at the time was, well, if Sir Stephen Redgrave can train with an East, East German coach, then why can't I? 
I saw on your timeline on Twitter, there was a quote from uh, the former sprinter and journalist Jeanette Kwachi. A black athlete skirts the very fine line between being the nation's sweetheart and a pariah. Do you think it was because you was a you was a black woman, or I didn't I didn't think about colour. I didn't think about anything ap- apart from I'm the World Championships are a few um, uh, months away. Um, I'd already missed the Commonwealth Games on home soil in Manchester, two thousand and two. Yeah. I had literally just under a year, or just over a year, to prepare for for Paris in two thousand and three, and I was coachless. And obviously, I, I, I just wanted to get back um, because I love I love my sport. <clears throat> so it was it was it wasn't easy. I could see other people's point of view, but at the time, I really was just I just need to train. I just need to get my head down. I need to look after my baby, and I, I just need to to get over these this this obstacle. And hopefully, and I did say hopefully. People can see that, you know, I'm still the same Denise that had just won a gold medal and the same Denise that you've been following for the last sort of decade. But that was very naive of me. I'm looking back on 2004 now. Um, what are your feelings about that? You know, uh, I think Daly had a, not a similar experience, but, you know, that kind of going to an Olympics and not ending on this huge, joyous high. How did you feel in 2004? Again, 2004 was... <laughs> the year started badly because I twisted my ankle um, on, a, on a jog. <laughs> I was thinking, OK, what's this about now? Um, so I was out for, for weeks weeks ankle was just so bad and everything just progressively got worse as the year went on so having tried to sort of rebuild my body and catch up ground from sort of the 2002 straight 2003 season you know we did work hard Charles and I but you know we we knew that I, I was missing just that finesse that you need um and so going into those championships, knowing that you're not quite there, I was struggling. My, my foot, I had no feeling in my left foot. So this is the same left foot that got injured back in Sydney. I was supposed to have a surgery. I never had it. And so my, my, my doctor and my, my, my coach, again, were just like, you know, wish you'd listen. You know? And so the foot was just not, not the same, not the same. So everything was a struggle that year. And it's a horrible feeling when you have been in an Olympi- in, in two Olympics where you sort of feel that you've got a chance um, to go into one where you're just uncertain again all the way and knowing that you haven't even got, you don't trust, you don't trust yourself and your confidence is low. You know, and that's when I realised how much my confidence had taken a battering over the, the previous seasons of having to endure the onslaught um, outside influences that affected my, my confidence. And so, yeah, I wasn't happy. I wasn't a happy bunny. Uh, 
and things just just didn't go my way at all. Didn't feel good, and consequently had to withdraw. So that's that's a shame. It's not it's not how anyone wants to to sort of end their Olympic memories. And I guess sometimes I do just shelve it because there's no point in in dwelling on uh, a negative. But it is what it is, and it happens in sports. Some you win, some you lose. get to some more joyous moments because I feel like we've been there in wallowing in the uh, in the past for, for, for exactly and and you know what I was watching like a couple of weeks ago the London 2012 opening ceremony like what 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 was that like for you uh, I was in the stadium watching I had a golden ticket, so I felt really privileged to be there. And as you can remember, if you remember, the lead up, everyone was like, gosh, there's a pattern, you're going to be a sheep, there's a cow, there's this, that everyone was speculating about what that opening ceremony would look like. And, you know, you start to put negativity in your head thinking, well, what are we going to do? Uh, but I sat there and my heart was full from the start to the finish of that opening ceremony. Obviously, we had every emotion. We had laughter. We saw the, the Queen, or AKA her stunt double, um, <laughs> coming down in a, you know, with James Bond. You know, it was just, all of it was just awesome. So we had comedy, we had Mr. Bean. It was just all brilliant for me. And it was that, um, that feeling, overwhelming feeling of pride and look how great our country is really in the grand scheme of things. We've managed to pull off what I think has been one of the opening ceremonies of the decade. I think it was just fabulous in every way. I think it was the best Olympics ever. Yeah. I mean, just honouring so many people, uh, as you said, that make our country great, that keep the wheels turning, the engines through time that, you know, we should be proud of. And we had a moment to celebrate them like no other. And I, I just felt, wow, we properly nailed it. And it got me thinking, there's going to be another opening ceremony in Birmingham, of all places. Hey! For the Commonwealth Games. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the second city is about to um, show, show everyone what it's made of. And uh, yeah, two years, just over two years, yeah. Are you one of the ambassadors for that? Well, I am president of Commonwealth Games England, oh. don't you know? So, no, I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> yes, and again, chance to have a home home games, which I think is always special and brings out the good in people. Um, not only the athletes respond well, but hopefully the communities in and around Birmingham and, and the country will get involved, which I think is important. Tokyo 2020, Katarina Johnson-Thompson, you know better than anyone else Katarina's kind of struggles and how much she has gone through to get to that point of becoming world champion in Doha. What can we talk about in that heptathlon? What can we look forward to at Tokyo 2020? I always hate to think that it's going to be a two-horse race, but it, I, I do think it's between Katarina and Nafi Tian, um, <laughs> the reigning Olympic champion. 
cat's grown so much and Daly will also tell you, you know, we've sat time and time again watching her. Um, but I like to think that's the old cat. Now there's a super cat in town and I think she is poised and ready to to really be competitive. I mean, I don't want to hang the, the medal around her neck, but because Tiam is she's quite fearless. She's strong. She'll be determined because she has lost her world title um, to her arch rival and she's got some skills. She has some serious skills in her back pocket. Um, I think the question for everyone is, is how well her elbow will have recovered. Um, that I think held her back at the last championships in, in Doha a little bit, but it's going to be a fabulous competition be on the edge of your seats and I think the the momentum is going to swing back and forth between the two the two women right to the, the bitter end um, I think they're both mentally ready for that challenge no, do, do you know what Denise I think I think you're exactly right I I would say that going into it if both of the both of the ladies are in a hundred percent then I would say that Kat is probably second favorite but I think that it only it just just depends on how your two days go, and just yeah. something really small can make such a big difference. Of course, she can do it, but yeah, it's going to be fan It's going to be the best competition in Tokyo. So I like to end on the most random note possible on the Olympic Channel podcast. Challenge time. Because it's daily, I thought about daily's daily routine. Some questions for you, Denise, about your daily routine. Do you brush your teeth? Yes, every day. Look at these teeth. Come on. Do you work out? Yes. During lockdown, every day. <laughs> thinking that, I'm thinking of a comeback. The, the, the challenge is to, to don't dig out my, um, my Olympic kit from the loft and see if I can still fit in it. Read a book? No, not unless it's a children's book, no. <laughs> and what about listen to the Olympic Channel podcast? Oh, absolutely every day. <laughs> you are the man, Ed. Got another one. How big is your nose, Pinocchio? I know, can you see? Look. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Olympic Channel podcast. Is there something, though, uh, Denise, that you do in a daily routine that you would recommend someone, you know, to, to do? Is there something that you wouldn't miss every day in terms of your daily routine? What I try to do every day is um, give myself positive affirmation about getting through the day. Because there are some days where I feel really challenged and overwhelmed and physically stretched, mentally stretched. And I wonder how I'm just going to have the energy to, to, to get through the day. And so I start with a, a little bit of a morning stretch, daily's favorite. And it's nothing major, but it literally is just loosening up my shoulders, my neck. And it's almost like I take in, I take in the energy that I'm going to need to get through the day. If you start with the positive thought for the day, um, hopefully you will get through your day with, Managing your expectations are not only of yourself, but other people, because um, I think that's usually the biggest disappointment when you're expecting someone to have done this or said this or do this. Yeah. 
morning affirmations are good. Denise, it's been such a pleasure. I've enjoyed myself so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed Thanks, it. You've Dizzy. been brilliant. Olympic Channel Podcast. Right then, I will tell you who is our guest on next week's episode in just a second. But first, a massive thank you to Denise Lewis, Daly Thompson, and to Worldwide Olympic and Paralympic partner Bridgestone. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you did, leave us a five-star review. Give Olympic Channel a follow on socials. We are just Olympic Channel. I'm Eddie Knowles with a nine and eight, and Daly is Daly Thompson on Twitter. Denise is real Denise Lewis on Instagram and Twitter. So we're up to the 2000s and with our next guest, Daly will be with us again, of course, with another Olympic legend who chased her dreams no matter what, the most decorated female Olympian from Great Britain, a five-time Olympian, it's Olympic champion rower, Catherine Granger. I've never used the word sacrifice and I generally don't want to and I know a lot of athletes who feel similarly in that you know, a lot of it's just choices. It's, you know, we, we chose to be athletes and we chose to do the sport we did and we chose to stay in it as long as we did. And, you know, it's a really, it's an incredible time of your life where you can, you know, just focus on this one area and you can, you know, everything about you and everything around you and everyone you're working with is about this sort of quest for improvement and realizing your potential and you know I was lucky I worked I love being in a team sport as well and working with people around me and bringing out the best in them and likewise they were trying to bring out the best in me and and you're trying to achieve something together and that's a really you know I do look back and think it was it was really was an incredible time remember to hit subscribe it's an amazing interview you really don't want to miss out on it that's it for now stay safe and see you soon think like an olympian